I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got three interviews for you. We're going to hear from Hans Joachim Rodelius, the 86-year-old founder of the 70s electronic groups Cluster and Harmonia. He's gone on to quite a different and prolific career. We'll talk about Creaky Piano being a prisoner of the Stasi and his new album, Drauf und Drawn. Then, I've got an interview with Thievery Corporation. Eric Hilton, one half of the group, has a pair of new ambient lounge albums out. We talk about them and Thievery Corporation. Finally, it's the fifth icon of Echoes, Philip Glass. I've got a profile of this influential musician. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about a really good electronic album you might have missed this year, Dreams Beyond by Norwegian electronic artist Svete Knut Johansson. Dreams Beyond is a journey into surreal landscapes and sonic dreamscapes. It's right down that space music highway but with a more contemporary sound to it. Theta Knut Johansson's Dreams Beyond is available from Amazon, iTunes, Bandcamp, and other retailers. And now, let's go on and on with Hans Joachim Rodelius. One of the legendary groups in German electronic music is the duo Cluster, comprised of Dieter Mobius and Hans-Joachim Rodelius. They started out in the avant-garde side of things before finding a quirkier, almost music box sound. It was a sound that brought Brian Eno to them in the mid-1970s to record a couple of albums. Dieter Mobius was untethered from the planet in 2015, but Hans-Joachim Rodelius continues making new music at the age of of 86. He recently released the album Drauf und Drawn. I'm speaking to Hans Joachim Rodelius on Zoom from his home in Baden, outside of Vienna. Behind him is the original painting for his 1980 album, Selbs Portrait 3. He didn't paint it, but it was his concept, and he looks a bit like Vincent van Gogh in it. As we speak, I hear a woman's voice in the background. Martha? Martha? Hast du einen Schnaps für mich? Ist grad Pause hier. Hast du einen kurzen Schnaps für mich? Ja. Ein Baileys? Oh, that's my wife. She's bringing me a Baileys, a Schnaps, you know, to give me strength to talk to you. <laughs> now across a Zoom screen, showing me his bottle of Baileys. He has a lot less hair. In fact, he's been bald for decades and his Van Dyke beard has gone white. The day before he spoke, he'd celebrated his 86th birthday in 2020 pandemic fashion. Oh, we had an online Zoom session from the birthday party in, a, in an art place here in my home city. 
where I played a concert with people together who played after my notes. For the first time in my life, uh, there were people, they played my music after scores that were um, um, made by my, my label, Grönland Records. Rodelius has had a colorful life. Born in 1934, at the age of 10, he was forced into the Hitler Youth just before the war ended. As a teenager, he escaped from East Germany, then behind the Berlin Wall, but then he returned for his parents. He was caught and imprisoned for two years and two months. First I was, for half a year, the Stasi got me under control. They wanted to make me a spy from West Germany because they couldn't believe that somebody is so idiot to come from West to East Germany. <laughs> I was that idiot, so I had to be it. I was, a, I mean, at the end now, when I am thinking about it, everything what happened in my life was to learn about how life can be and to don't take it too serious, to become aware of um, what can happen in one people's life and in which way he can cope with it. And I mean, for me, it's just experience. Now it's no harm, it's just experience. After he was released from prison, he spent time as a massage therapist before taking his passport and moving back to West Germany. In the late 60s, he fell in with the avant-garde scene in Germany and a movement called Actionism. In the late 60s, everything in the field of arts, any art, after Hitler, there was a big black hole in the culture of Germany. So we had to go a different way to get rid of all the of the Nazi time. And, and, and most of what happened there started with Josef Beuys and Konrad Schnitzler just trying to find out which way uh, we could do something. So because there was no concept, only the concept of actionism, we wanted to find out something uh, that was the name for it. It was just the name for the movement, actionism, after World War II. This was music with no harmony, melody, or rhythm, celebrating noise. The work of actionism has often been called violent, and you can hear that in Rodelius' first group, Human Being, from this live 1968 recording. This was a real actionism. Yeah, Human Being was the most actionistic group at the time, yeah. That sound held sway into the early Cluster albums when he teamed up with Dieter Mobius. At first, they were Cluster with a K, and that music was very avant-garde.
but then they changed their name to Cluster with a C and a more personal and melodic sound emerged. It worked so that even after all this um, actionistic music in the beginning, at the end, we were very romantic, maybe, and I, and we made Zuckerzeit, we made sowieso so, totally different from the music from the beginning. Lloyd Cole, who recorded as Lloyd Cole and the Commotions in the New Wave 80s, was already a fan of Rodelius before they collaborated in the 2010s. It's the feeling of the composition which it has the use of repetition without feeling that it has to constantly develop. I think there's something wonderful about the use of repetition when the composer is so confident in what he or she has that that they don't feel that every 16 bars something different has to happen. The tracks on, on So 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 do develop, but they don't develop in a predictable linear way. And then I suppose the, the last thing is, is, is the sense of melody, which I think is primarily from Rodelius, the, the, the sense of melodic content. American ambient chamber music composer Tim Story, who has been collaborating with Rodelius since 2000. The two of them, they absolutely needed each other because Moby tempered the, the sweetness and, and Akeem could make a lovely melody out of some of the most unlikely elements. So they were, they were a good team for that very reason. Our collaboration was perfect. It really, really, I did the romantic part of it and he did the rough, the punky part of it. And it did fit a lot, you know. Cluster worked together off and on into the 21st century, but all along, Rodelius was making solo records. Early on, they were electronic-based, like his debut, Dirk Di Vusta, or Through the Desert. One album quickly followed another, piano became the central figure in Rodelius's sound. Sometimes that piano goes to unusual places like the Tim Story installation piece, The Rodelius Cells. The basic concept is 12 years of recordings with Akim for other projects and ending up with about 12 hours of piano. And I didn't want to release it as it was. It was sprawling, unfinished, but I began combining very small pieces of it together, extremely small in some cases. And I ended up with a, a cycle of 10 pieces that, that are composed, completely recomposed, reimagined uh, pieces uh, that, that I did not play a single note of piano on but these are reproduced on an eight channel so that you can hear my process, my composition process. Uh, you can, uh, and, and sort of reinvent the sound stage as your own. It's very successful to get the idea there's something special already, to put some bits of uh, piano leftovers together. 
and making pieces out of it. Very short, from two or three seconds to five or ten seconds, and to, to make an installation from it. It's a, such a great idea. Electronics are absent from Rodelius's latest album, Drauf und Dran. It's purely solo piano. I'm so fascinated by this instrument, and I know that's my future to work with. Um, I don't think that I'm going further on with electronic music. This is music that starts in improvisation. When you sit down at the piano, I just have to be empty to let the music come, to let come what's coming in the actual moment. So that's a sort of picture out of a moment. It's a gift of the moment. Every piece is a gift of the moment. Hans-Joachim Rodelius is something of an elder statesman for German new music, but he sees his current fondness for the piano as a new path. For me, it's a, it's a new era. It's a, it opened a new door to something which I want to do in the future, just working with the sound of the piano, not really doing composing, but um, elaborating what's possible uh, to experiment with the sound of the piano, the strings. So I'm very curious about what's coming up uh, in the future when it's possible to play concerts again. I say that Drauf und Dran is Rodelius's latest album, I claim that with hesitancy because he's likely to have a new one out as I speak. Hans Joachim Rodelius is still finding new directions in music at 86. After all, Drauf und Dran means on and on. Hans Joachim Rodelius's latest album is Drauf und Dran on the Grunland label. I'll have a link for it in the posting for this podcast.
Now let's go to some musicians who have defined down-tempo music for the last couple of decades. Thievery Corporation. Thievery Corporation, the duo of Rob Garza and Eric Hilton, has been a fixture on the down-tempo pan-global music scene since 1995. The band released their Symphonics album in early 2020, and now Eric Hilton has released the first two recordings in a planned trilogy. They reveal the different tendencies of these two artists. Speaking backstage at Moogfest 2010 in Asheville, North Carolina, Rob Garza says he had one intent with the music of Thievery Corporation. I think in general we want to make music that sounds like you're high. When I was a kid, I remember my father, you know, be listening to the radio and he'd be like, oh, that's when the Beatles were taking acid and stuff like that. And made me want to try acid, <laughs> you know, because I would just hear, you know, like Lucy in the Skies with Diamond or Strawberry Fields and things like that. And I just thought they were kind of the most incredible things that I heard. Hence, songs like Lebanese Blonde and 2001 Spliff Odyssey. Hilton, speaking to us on Zoom, claims to have never been psychedelicized. I just don't think I've ever had the right opportunity. Yet, on one of his 2020 solo albums, he has a song like More Beautiful Things with this homage to LSD. The people that I know that have taken acid, we can look out at the other people that haven't, and they can, they can tell us we're crazy. And we can say, well, you haven't seen anything yet. Because there are things that are more beautiful. You know, it was a clip that I found and I heard it and I loved the sheer honesty in that girl's voice. And, you know, it was a vintage clip and it kind of hit me in a positive way. And then I played it before the song. And then when the song hit, I was like, wow, oh, this is just giving me some feels that I didn't have before. And I was like, I'm going to intro the song with this.
Thievery Corporation began on the Washington, D.C. club scene. Hilton, who is still a restaurateur with several eateries around the city, had his first club, 18th Street Lounge. Rob Garza. Uh, we've known each other since 1995. I met Eric. He had just opened up a bar called the 18th Street Lounge in Washington. I walked in there one night, and they were playing Antonio Carlos Jobim, Aguas de Marzo, and I was like, this was back in 95, so this is before, like, that whole resurgence of bossa nova started to become very popular again. I was a DJ. Uh, Rob was not a DJ at that time, and I don't think he ever really had DJed at that time. He was dabbling in making like techno music under the name Juju Thievery Corporation. Well, actually, that was the label's name. So I met Eric. We were talking, and um, he was aware that I was doing music production. I was aware that he was producing music as well, and we decided let's put our equipment together in a friend's house and see if we can kind of make some music and get things going. And we got together and we started messing around with our equipment and Thievery Corporation was born on day one because we actually made a song. started out doing DJ sets and Echo's producer, Jeff Town, who spoke with Eric Hilton, caught an auspicious one in 1995. I saw you guys spin one time at a Cloudwatch event. Do you remember if you remember those out of Baltimore? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was actually our first performance ever. Is that right? Oh, really? Yeah. So you were at the first thievery performance ever. Wow. Thievery Corporation is a melange of sounds. You can hear reggae toasters, dub bass lines, Indian sitars, bossa nova rhythms, lounge music atmospheres, and electronic beats from down-tempo to space music. At that time, I think hip-hop was flourishing, and we admired the way that people would uh, you know, be able to mix so many different types of styles and create very cut and paste kind of sonic collages you know, things like public enemy things that were happening in europe and japan and people just really working with the sampler and chopping up beats and loops and making just very intriguing sonic palettes you know or, or canvases we would sample kicks and snares and you know make drum loops and sample drum loops sometimes sample everything we could really and then you know, I would play the bass, he'd play the keys, sometimes we'd switch, and, you know, we just, by any means necessary, we would make music. a lot of singers, among them Miliano Torini, Natalia Clavier, Shanna Halligan, Raquel Jones, Mr. Liff, Notch, and Lulu. No, not that Lulu. This one spelled L-O-U-L-O-U. -L -O -U. 
Lulu came to the studio one day just to visit way back in the day at 18th Street Lounge and I could hear her singing something from the other room and I know I know she was singing to be heard you know she was just sort of lightly singing and you know it caught my attention and I, I told Rob hey I think we should give Lulu a try. genres that thievery made hip was lounge music that used to be a pejorative rob garza totally i mean but i think um it had to have its next wave where people kind of appreciated it took it apart and kind of took those influences and just expanded on it I remember going to Brazil and, you know, the Brazilians were kind of like in awe in a little way because people were taking this music that they'd already kind of forgotten about and doing all this stuff electronically back in the late 90s. two musicians, Eric Hilton is the more retiring one. He sometimes doesn't tour with the band, preferring to stay home, running his restaurants, and making music. Rob Garza has released a few solo recordings in recent years, heading into more of a dance and techno direction. Hilton got more introspective and mellow on the albums Infinite Everywhere, released in mid-summer 2020, and The Impossible Silence, released late fall. These are the first two of a trilogy. Infinite Everywhere reflects the lysergic feel that I referenced earlier. Yeah, that sounds fair, and it actually even sounds relevant today. I mean, for a lot of the stuff that I'm doing just on my own, I want to feel like I'm being transported, you know, somewhere. Hilton's second album, The Impossible Silence, is inspired by a lot of things that inspire Thievery Corporation, but especially film scores from the 60s and 70s. It's not the usual Ennio Morricone or John Williams soundtracks, but more obscure cinema, much of it from Europe. Like The Liquidator is a good soundtrack, uh, 
it's sort of a spy movie. It has some really cool, I think it was a Lalo Schifrin production. A lot of the Italian composers had great songs like Armando Travaholi. There's a compilation that we did for ESL where we took a lot of Italian uh, movie soundtrack music from Right Tempo, actually, and it's called Get Easy. That's a sound that I look for a lot, and it's just very hard to find the gems. It's a, it's a deep mine. That's Armando Travaholi from his score to Bruti in 1976. You can hear that sound echoed across Hilton's The Impossible Silence, especially in the keyboard sounds. Hilton and Rob Garza are currently bi-coastal, and Thievery, who usually tour constantly, are in a holding pattern during pandemic. For Hilton, many of his restaurants are in a holding pattern as well, except, sadly, the famed 18th Street Lounge, where it all began. 18th Street Lounge is closed. A bunch of other of our venues are closed, and a couple restaurants are open doing carry-out, French food carry-out. Imagine that. <laughs> But Hilton has clearly used his pandemic time productively with a third album in the wings. For me, I think it's where I hit my stride. I think it will clearly be you know, the best record of the three, which is weird to say as you're releasing a record. But it's they're different. They're all different. But I feel like um, maybe it expands on Infinite Everywhere in a much deeper way, which I'm pretty happy with the song so far. Eric Hilton has released the first two albums of his trilogy, The Impossible Silence and Infinite Everywhere. The latest album from Thievery Corporation is Symphonics. That was a really fun piece to do. I'll have links to Eric Hilton's two new albums up in the posting for this podcast. Over the last month, I've been bringing you specials on the 30 Icons of Echoes, and today I've got the fifth icon, Phil Glass. Before we get to that, though, I want to thank everybody who contributed to the Echoes Fall Fundraiser, only our second fundraiser in 31 years, where we actually asked you, the listener, for support of Echoes. And you came through. We still have a ways to go, however, to make our budget for 2020. So if you haven't given yet, you can still do it at echoes.org. There's only a couple of weeks left in the year. I mean, let's get real. Tell me the last podcast you heard with Thievery Corporation, Hans Joachim Rodelius, and Philip Glass in it, let alone the last radio show. 
So in this Christmas season, let's keep creative music on the air and in the podcast. Go to echoes.org and donate now. And speaking of now, let's hear Phil Glass, the fifth of 30 icons of Echoes. Today, I've got the fifth of 30 Icons of Echoes, Philip Glass. He's actually a new addition to our Icons list, to which we add five new artists every five years. I was actually shocked he wasn't on earlier. But he got the most votes in our latest poll. Although he's a lot older than me, I still think of him as a composer who I came up with. Philip Glass, Steve Reich, and Terry Riley all helped bring me over from rock into a different music world. It seems like they just haven't been around long enough to be octogenarians. None of them are taking the usual route of composers their age, of becoming elders and teachers. Glass in particular is more active in more forms than ever. Today, we take a look back at maximum minimalism with an icon of echoes, Philip Glass. In the early days of minimalism, composers like Philip Glass were ridiculed as simplistic, repetitious, and primitive. But Philip Glass retorted right back, calling the music from atonal and serial composers of the day creepy. <laughs> In 1964, 5, and 6, I certainly looked at the older generations of composers as people. They were my enemies. I had to displace them. Uh, everything they did was wrong. Uh, almost anything I could do would be right as long as it wasn't that. Philip Glass was part of the minimalist movement, which included both music and visual arts. Along with Steve Reich, Terry Riley, and Lamont Young, their music was characterized by long, repetitive note cycles and an absence of harmony or counterpoint. It was called minimal, though Philip Glass preferred the term reductive. Reductive, uh, I meant that, uh, that the harmonic language was reduced to almost zero. Uh, there's no counterpoint, there's no harmony. Uh, there's a steady stream of eighth notes in one meter, all in one in one uh, in one tempo, all the way through. Uh, that's uh, this kind of I call it reductive. That's what people meant when they said minimal. But uh, the trouble with minimal as a label is that uh, my music stopped being reductive in 1974, but the word minimal music has gone on. In the mid-1960s, Philip Glass worked with Indian sitarist Ravi Shankar, orchestrating the soundtrack to Chappaqua. He cites that as a turning point. I had the good fortune to meet Ravi Shankar, a very important part of my life. I wrote in the music, in the manner of my music teachers. My first real voice came after this period of time I spent with Ravi Shankar and my travels in the East, and I formed an amalgam of maybe ideas about rhythmic structure and my own ideas about pitch structure, and uh, that was the beginning for me. But I would say that prior to that, I had no voice of my own. Ravi Shankar. It helped him to think about music differently. That's what he said always. And he got interested also in the rhythmic aspect of our music, you know, variations and complications and uh, the counterpoint that we do through our rhythmic uh, expressions. 
These days, Philip Glass has Hollywood film scores, orchestral and operatic commissions from around the world. But in the 1960s and 70s, he was working odd jobs while trying to get his career together. The story of him driving a cab the day after his Einstein on the Beach premiered at the Metropolitan Opera is legendary. Kurt Munchese is Glass's longtime engineer, producer, and collaborator. He recalls how Glass recorded his first album in 1969 by clandestinely using a studio at night after driving a taxicab all day. I was actually working for John Lennon, as a matter of fact. I was the, he had a staff of like four or five engineers working for him, and I was the junior engineer on the staff. He used to sweep the floors and, and curl my cables and all that sort of stuff. And as a matter of fact, what the funny part was is when I started working with Philip. Philip and I used to go into the studio at midnight after everybody had left because I had the keys and we'd work on the record when no one else was around. For free, of course. Philip Glass doesn't need to sneak into studios anymore. One of his crowning achievements remains his 1976 opera, Einstein on the Beach. It's a sprawling four-hour epic that stands with Terry Riley's In Sea and Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians as a defining work of minimalism. Terry was in this premature air-conditioned supermarket, and there were always aisles. And there were these bathing caps that you could buy that had these kind of four inch long pieces on them that were red and yellow and blue. And I wasn't tempted to buy them, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. I was in this premature air-conditioned supermarket. Einstein on the Beach was the beginning of a long operatic career that began very unconventionally, influenced by his theater work with the Mabu Mines. The kind of theater that I grew up in was, a, was what's called a non-narrative theater, or a theater of images. Or, it was based on the theater work that was largely a group work. Uh, we rarely started with a, uh, a script and then put it on the, play, uh, put it on the stage. Uh, they almost never told us a story in a, in a normal way. This is a theater which, uh, where the starting point could be a movement, a gesture, an image, a title, like Einstein on the Beach. It rarely started from a play. Philip Glass extended his theater work into films and has scored several movies, including Notes on a Scandal and The Hours. But it's still his trilogy of films with director Godfrey Reggio that stand as iconic works. Koyana Skatsi in 1982 was followed by Pawakatsi and Nakoikatsi. With no dialogue or narration, they were an unprecedented meeting of image and music. director, Godfrey Reggio. Philip Glass's music is the narration for the film. Music portends a direct communion, a direct communication to the soul of the listener. This is the power of music. So in the form of film that Phil and I do, we, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, I would call it an experiential form of film, one that can for some people, offer the possibility of a meaningful experience with Philip's music as the narration for that meaningful event.
The romantic notion of composers prior to Philip Glass was that their music would be appreciated after they were gone. But Philip Glass was the point man for a generation who believed there could be an audience for contemporary music while the composer was still alive. I can't deny that that's been part of my, my aim, is to be seen that way, that this is, I've always wanted to be part of the culture of my time and not of another time, the past or the future. Philip Glass now has an incredibly vast catalog. I didn't even touch on his low and hero symphonies with David Bowie and Brian Eno, nor his inventive point music label in 1990s and aughts that included records by Wakchi, Gavin Bryars, and Arthur Russell, and numerous other cutting-edge artists. Philip Glass continues pouring out new work into his mid-80s. He's up to 12 symphonies and numerous sonatas, and even though he's kind of gone a bit more traditionally classical than the sound of his signature works, they are nevertheless readily identifiable as uniquely Philip Glass. He's the fifth of 30 icons of Echoes. In our poll for new entries into the 30 icons, Phil Glass got the most votes, just beating out Mike Oldfield, which is a bit ironic, I think. We'll be taking a break over the next two weeks of the Christmas holidays, and when we return in 2021, I'll have interviews with Olafur Arnolds and Kevin Keller, along with more icons of Echoes, including Vangelis, Klaus Schulze, Steve Reich, Robert Rich, and Enya. I'm John DiLibretto. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next year, tonight on the radio somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want. Mm-hmm.